Trigger warning. This case deals with violence against a child. This is the Crimecasters Network with Alicia Safias and Ronnie Dahl. Two rogue reporters breaking newsroom rules to take you behind the crime scene tape. Cheers, Crimecasters. The case we are telling you about today is one with such disturbing details, it still haunts detectives to this day. It involves the murder of Raven Jeffrey. She was abducted, her body found days later and miles away, burned, discarded in a cardboard box. Ronnie, these cases are always hard. But one of the reasons you wanted to do this story is because you feel like it needs more attention. It needs to be out there. And you have information that has never been released before. And we'll share that information as we lay out this case. And I have to let people know I didn't cover Raven's murder when it first happened back in 2006. I actually met her mom, Brenda Jeffries, years later in 2011. Sadly, I was covering the murder of another Detroit girl, five-year-old Mariah Smith, and I had interviewed Brenda just for perspective on the case. But unlike Mariah's case, Raven's remains unsolved. But Alicia, something Brenda said to me off camera that day has stuck with me all these years. And she said... They believe they know exactly who killed her daughter. I can't imagine. Let's start the last day Raven was seen alive, August 4th, 2006. It's a Friday. Raven heads to her friend Juan's house. He lives a couple houses down the street. His cousin Andy is also there. Juan has a PlayStation, so of course all the kids are spending the afternoon playing video games. Oh, I love the PlayStation. (laughs) We didn't have one. It was like... That was like the goal, Okay, let's date ourselves. No, because (laughs) I had Super Nintendo, and, like, everyone would come over, and I know when the next version came out, it was like you weren't cool anymore. You had to go to the friend's house that had the cool video game. So that's what they're doing here. Well, on that Friday, uh, it was warm out because it's summer in Michigan. So after a while, the kids do abandon the video game, which is a good thing, and they head outside to play. But that's when they spot Buster. He's a black and white lab mix dog wagging his tail. He's sitting in a truck. Buster doesn't live in the neighborhood. He belongs to a friend of Raven's older brother, David. And I'm going to call his friend Dick. Dick says the kids can play with Buster, but only in the truck. So they hop in And Buster is so cute. I've seen a picture. (laughs) He is so adorable. And you know I'm a crazy dog person. But after a while, Andy leaves to go ride his bike. And Juan is called home. Raven stays to play with Buster. And here is where details of that fateful night get murky. David, who was 19 at the time, was on babysitting duty. Raven's mom wasn't feeling well. So she's at home laying down and... Her other two sisters are around. They're 17 and 13. So they, well, are being teenagers. They're hanging out with their friends. They walk to the store, go to a neighborhood park. They really are just hanging out. Feeling better, Brenda starts dinner. So it's about 7.30 at night. She goes outside to get the grill going. 
And when she sees David, she asks, hey, where's Raven? You're on babysitting duty. You're the older brother. David says, well, last I saw her, she was on the porch with her sisters. But they say, Raven's not with us. At first, they don't panic, though, because Raven had wandered off before, only to be found playing at a friend's house. But minutes turn into hours, and the search intensifies. Still no sign of Raven. The family makes the tough decision to call police, and at 11.40 p.m., an amber alert goes out. Police start by searching all of the houses on the block. They bring in a canine. They question everyone, including the sex offenders in the area. They usually do this when a little child goes missing. Soon after, the FBI joins the investigation. The search continues through the weekend and still no sign of Raven. Monday morning, miles away, an employee for WDRJAM stops at the radio tower, which sits in a remote area of Romulus, Michigan. He's there to make repairs. He opens the gate, and the smell hits him. Looking around, he sees what he thinks is a deer carcass until he takes a closer look. It's not a deer, but a badly burned body in a cardboard box dumped right there in the field. Detectives arrive on the scene to the sickening sight. The body is already in a state of decomposition, severely burned and ravaged by animals. Right away, they suspect this could be the little missing girl out of Detroit. It would take DNA to make a positive ID. The Wayne County Medical Examiner determines that Raven officially died of violence of unknown etiology, which in medical terms means basically they don't know. So it could be the cause or causes of a disease. They really don't know because of the state of the body. So at this point, Raven's disappearance is a homicide investigation, and they know she didn't wander away. She was driven away. So investigators go back to the neighborhood where Raven was last seen alive, and they begin questioning everyone again, including her brother David. He's given a polygraph. He fails. His statements are so inconsistent, they are just little details that lead investigators to believe he's hiding something. And of course, they were right. He is. Now, this is a part of the investigation that has never been made public before until now. And I do think it's an important part of this investigation. So David and his older brother are drug dealers. That is what has come out. And David's friend, Dick, Buster's owner, the cute dog, he wasn't a friend. He was a customer just there to buy drugs. He was in the neighborhood to get some cocaine and weed. And it turns out there's actually some recent bad blood between the brothers and Dick. So they are not friends. So, of course, investigators start to zero in on Dick. His story changes like the wind. He says, he left the neighborhood before Raven went missing, but cell phone records show Dick left the area shortly after the abduction. Investigators get a search warrant for his home, his truck, and a storage unit. They also find videos of bondage and violence. Now, Dick is given a polygraph. He fails. 
He knows he's prime suspect number one, and he starts telling people he believes police planted the evidence at his home. And yes, they would find Raven's DNA in his truck. She was in it earlier playing with Buster. And yes, he had been to that area where her body was found. But a lot of people go there to chill. Oh, and those scratches on his arms? He got those doing yard work. Or no, maybe it was from when he was assisting police on a consent search of his home. Way too many coincidences. (laughs) But at the end of the day, Alicia, it's still all circumstantial evidence. Mm -hmm. And to this day, not enough for the prosecutor to move forward with charges against Dick a devastating blow to the investigators that poured their hearts and souls into this case, especially former Detective Dwayne DeCaris, who says he looked evil in the eyes and it still haunts him today. Hear from him next. We want to hear from you. Find us at Crimecasters on your favorite social platforms. Together, we can heat up this cold case. We're joined now by a private investigator and retired Romulus police detective, Dwayne DeCaris. Great to have you with us. Uh, Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So you worked this case pretty much from the beginning. How did you become involved? Because Raven was actually missing out of Detroit. Um, Before we actually got involved, in our unit, we had, we always follow up on a lot of various things, watch a lot of the news, and get hints there and there, here and there. And um, uh, for the three or four days or a week or so prior, there was a you know it was always put on the news that this young uh, lady was uh, been kidnapped, uh, was missing out of Detroit. Um, and then on the morning that it, we got called, uh, a gentleman was out cut. It was out in a uh, rural part of Romulus. And um, he had uh, was out there bushwhacking and cutting the, the, the high grass over there. Came upon something that he thought might have been, uh, you know, an animal carcass or something. He went and um, checked into it, and he believed that it was a human body uh, that had been burned. He called our department. Uh, a patrol officer went out there, uh, the female patrol officer that uh, arrived. Uh, she locked everything down, called us at the detective bureau. Um, I went out myself. Um, I was the first detective on scene. And because of the uh, numerous times I had watched the video and uh, there was just pe- pieces of the uh, the scene that led to there was no doubt in my mind when I first arrived there, what I was looking at was the remains of uh, the young lady that was missing out of Detroit. You know what's so heartbreaking about this to me is to think that he didn't even recognize her as a human being. He didn't even know it was a little girl. Well, the person we had of interest um, was, um, it, it was really hard to dis- describe. I, I was involved in this case from the get-go, from start to finish. Um, uh, many of those of us that work this case, it's that case that you hear officers say that there's always that one that you'll take with you, especially as detectives. You know, we work so many major cases, and um, uh, there's always those. There's you, know, you, you hope not to get that one that sticks with you for the rest of your life. This one is. Um, 
but yeah, to, to find, it wasn't until I actually spoke with the person of interest that we had that I realized what I was dealing with uh, as far as uh, hard to even say that it was a human being. Um, it was somebody that was cold, calculated, and I was interviewed on this case uh, while we were investigating it, and I'll never forget that I had just told uh, told them that it was, was the most um, evil person I'd ever met in my career, and I've met many. And um, but this was the this was a person, true person that uh, uh, was just truly evil. That says a lot because, like you said, you have you've interviewed a lot of bad people. If we can um, back up uh, to the day that you're called into the investigation, from a detective standpoint, can you walk us through the steps of how an investigation works? Where do you start? Well, I have to say that under this investigation, it was um, it made it a little bit easier. And again, until we got DNA um, confirmation and things of that nature, but there was just things about the body that I looked at and I investigated that. Uh, so we were able to link that, okay, there was a missing person out of one city and we have recovered that missing person um, in our city. So we were able to contact that jurisdiction um, and let them know that we believed at that time, uh, all the evidence showed that we had their missing person. So that was, a, it made it a little bit easier to generate assistance. You know, Detroit was involved in the, in the instance of it. They uh, did their interviews, they did their polygraphs and everything. Then they called in the FBI. Um, they did their thing. So it actually gave us a chance to beat the bushes a little harder. We canvassed Detroit and that neighborhood many, 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 many times. Um, we executed uh, search warrants on a the person of interest's home uh, for evidence. We also did a search warrant for his vehicle that was in Detroit police impound. We actually took possession of that, sent it to the Detroit crime lab uh, to go through it uh, for us before anything had been touched. Um, so we, we were able to take it to another level, um, including some other, uh, a couple other search warrants we did, even on the person of interest for um, evidence. So tell us a little bit more about the person that became the main suspect. Once we really started digging into um, the circumstances, where he lived, where he worked, um, the circumstances would show that where he lived and where he worked, the place to where the body was recovered was right in the middle. It'd be like him driving from one, one street down to the other and it's right in the middle. Um, personally, I'm not a person that believes in coincidence, um, but he always had an answer for why at the crime scene. Yeah, maybe there's a tire track, maybe there's a cigarette butt, um, things to that nature. But there was, in our estimation, there was still, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence. I know it never came out in the middle um, of this case and at the height of the case, but both of her brothers were drug dealers. They were small time drug dealers and that had a connection to the suspect. 
And when it comes to the underground world of dealing with the drug industry and the people involved in the drug world, does that make this case so much hard, harder to try to put the pieces together? Because there's illegal activity going on. Well, that was the, the, the our, our, our prime person of interest was, uh, you know, was involved in the drug world. He was purchasing uh, narcotics from um, her brother. And there was uh, an instance where there was some arguments and stuff, but they also knew that this guy could be, you know, he um, had, a, had a violent side. He, um, um, he was able to scare some people. There were some threats made. Um, but that, that also, because we just could not believe in the neighborhood, we weren't able to find anybody not that they didn't cooperate, but there was a lot of, I didn't see anything, I don't know. We even interviewed the kids that Raven played with. Um, and it wasn't so much the children that didn't want to talk to us, it was the parents that did, didn't want them to talk to us. It's all these years later, still no justice for Raven. And he's still out there, he still lives in the community. I'm hoping even though this has opened up, uh, you know, some old old wounds, say, so to speak, um, maybe with uh, this getting reposted or uh, me actually, you know, maybe knocking on some doors and saying, hello, do you remember me? Mm -hmm. um, maybe it'll, it'll stir the pot a little bit and we can find that one witness. All these years later, maybe that's exactly what it's going to take. And uh, she deserves it. She's an innocent little girl. She had no idea of why. She had no idea of maybe a dispute that was going on between her brothers and her person of interest. Um, there was there's some other things involved in this person of interest to lead, again, that would lead us and be able to show um, circumstantially why, how his thought process works, who he likes, who he doesn't like, what was going on, what was the um issues between the brothers what we cause you're always looking for that motive what was the motive for somebody to go after this young lady in that to where you would kill somebody and then burn the body to, to uh, destroy evidence um uh, just it, th that would be part of the circumstances of the motive who had the motive to do this this wasn't just somebody that kidnapped a little girl walking down the street. That whole area, the kids played together and everything. Circumstances of the person of interest knowing her, she's comfortable with him. He has a dog. Um, all the little pieces of the, I always like to say, investigations are a piece, is a puzzle. And you put the puzzle together and this one, we had the whole puzzle just put together out of a thousand pieces. And it's that one little piece that we were just missing right in the middle. Hey, listeners, do you have questions, comments, or think you may have the key to solving this week's case? We want to hear from you. Find us at Crimecasters on your favorite social platforms. Together, we can heat up this cold case. This is the part of the show where we are going to go off script and talk about the cases we do while we investigate it. And this has had such a huge impact on the detectives. And I know there's a lot of frustration with 
family members of so many of these cold cases, but we never really talked about the frustration with the detectives as well, because they don't walk away from this. It's not a nine to five job. It sits with them and it hurts them just as much as it does the family members in some cases. They get to know these children. They study their habits. They look at pictures all day. They often have a picture on their desk of the unsolved cases. They talk to their family members about it. They become so emotionally invested. I know a lot of them have told me they have nightmares about it, especially when they think they know who did it. That is what is so difficult. I have so many questions. The new information sheds light to me because I always wondered why David, brother David, would fail the polygraph that always didn't sit well. But now I know he was probably lying about the drug dealing and that's why it came back deceptive. However, it doesn't excuse the fact that Dick failed the polygraph. First of all, I know everyone out there wants to know, where is this guy? Where is this (laughs) suspect right now? Is he still out there? Is he in prison? Where is he? No, here's the crazy thing. So um, taking a look back at this case, you... I'd track Dick down. He still lives here in our community. Not only that, his phone number is still the same. You called him. Oh, of course. Come on. What did he say? What did he <laughs> You say? know me. Of course I'm going to call him. Um, so, and actually, uh, so I call, I get a voicemail, I leave a message. And when he called back, basically he says, I said everything I had to say 15 years ago. It's actually 16 now. Um, I'm not talking, call my attorney. So he still supposedly has an attorney or is at least scapegoating that onto his attorney. I know that if one of my friends or acquaintances or, or whatever, if one of their siblings, young siblings was viciously attacked and murdered, I would do everything in my power to help out the investigation, whether you called me 10 years from now, 20 years from now, or 72 years from now. And if I was still alive. So the fact that he's angry still and he's mad because, listen, there's so much circumstantial evidence against this guy that I'm sorry that you're mad. First of all, the dog in the car is a big one for me because all of the kids were coming in. It was almost like he was luring the kids into his truck, which is creepy in and of itself. So one thing I didn't um, share with you, but in the... um Talks I've had with so many people connected to this case is they said, you know, he has brought the dog before. He hadn't been in the neighborhood for about a month, but he he has brought Buster before, but he would tell the kids, no, you can't play with him because he's going to bite you. Oh, but this time it was okay. And Raven was definitely in the truck at one point because he says that she was. Now, I know this has been incredibly difficult for the family. Um And there's been more devastating losses for Raven's mom. She lost two of her sons. Brenda Jeffries in 2011 was more than gracious. And by the way, we're cold calling her. We like drive to the house, knock on the door, and she opens it up and she talks to us. So what's the first thing you're going to do in this case? You're going to go back and you're going to um, reach out to the mother. And... Completely different reception this time. She basically told me through a speaker on the phone, go away. I don't want to talk with you. Mm. 
So um, I left, and you want to be respectful of what they're going through. But I did return. I, I, I wrote a card, left a note, and put it in the mailbox just to explain because, you know, time changes. Right. And typically time changes in the way that they share their stories. But in this way, it was opposite. So one thing about uh, this neighborhood is if you drive down um, their street, they know you're there. Everyone knows Mm -hmm. you are there. It's a very close-knit community in southwest Detroit. But she, after Raven's murder, there was an empty lot, and that's where Dick's truck was parked. And so they took that empty lot, and they built, like, basically a memorial garden. Because she has an amazing green thumb, too, by the way. Um, Her mother, Brenda. And so she built this amazing, you know, garden to remember her daughter's technically a city of Detroit lot, but they've turned it into something beautiful. And through the years, it's where they would have the memorial services, right? You would, People would come out, typically for the victims and their family members on the anniversary, they will have some type of public event. That's kind of faded through the years, but I noticed that the last time I went there, the big poster that they have. It's not a poster, it's a banner. Um, It used to be Raven. Now that banner has two other faces on it. And those being the two faces of her older brothers. Um, Timothy, who uh, was the older brother, he sadly did pass away of a drug overdose. And David, who everyone did say at the time, like he was getting his life in order. He was getting away from the drug scene. And when I say they were drug dealers, it was more low Small level. Time. Yeah. Right. We're not talking cartel or, right. or mainstream big time drug dealers in Detroit. Kind of low, lower level, right? Um, so he he got his life together. He was married, he had kids, he became a painter and was working on a commercial project years later in Ann Arbor which is where the University of Michigan is, and um, he had a tragic accident. It was on-the-job accident. He fell and and died from the accident. So I don't know if that kind of played into the mom's reluctance to really kind of talk about Raven at this point in time. I can't imagine losing three children, one to an accident, one to an overdose, and one to a vicious, brutal murder, and that attacker has never been brought to justice And we just have to sit and wait for that to happen because, like you said, this is a solvable case. And, man, Raven deserves justice. It's just, it just leaves you feeling so empty inside. Like, you know, I I just feel angry right now, to be honest. And it it really is um, because when you talk with the detectives, they retire and the case officially gets passed along to the next detective. So I have put in FOIA request uh, with the, um, you know, Romulus Police Department. And the detective who is now assigned to this case has never gotten back with me. Uh, so the FOIA coordinator did. And of course, when we're talking about cool cases, you get into 
tricky subjects and what can they release, what can they not, what's the cost going to be. We know for you with Bernita White, we were looking at 42000 Um, So it typically we'll say, hey, can we talk off the record first? And to this day, I've sent countless emails to the detective that this case is currently wow. assigned to because it is still considered an open case and never got a response. And um, when you dig into this and you start talking with people and looking at the so-called person, Dick, you, what was the motive? Right. Could there be a motive? And they interview anyone and everyone that's connected with a person of interest. And they talk to um, some of his former girlfriends and the people that he knew. So he apparently was high on coke that night because I know David was calling him to say, hey, come back, help us search for Raven. And he says, no, I'm too high on coke. I can't come back. So he was high on uh, cocaine. Uh, but other people say he was a crazy racist. And while David and... Just when I didn't think this guy could get any worse. Oh, let me tell you. And so they were saying, uh, you know, for the rest of the family members, they are white. But uh, Raven is, um, you know, their half-sister and her father is black. And so they think maybe he did it because he was a crazy racist. And I've been on his social media pages and I can tell you to this day, there are still elements of that resonating with this Facebook page. I can't. Uh, We, if this detective isn't getting back to you, I hate to say that I don't have a lot of faith that he's out there looking for to solve this case, but we have to hope for the best. So I made up flyers a Raven, uh, murdered with her picture and then the phone number for the police department. But I went and posted them throughout his neighborhood. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love it. And local businesses that are near where he lives today because someone close to him knows something. And that's what it is going to take. They have a lot of evidence circumstantial, but they still have the basis of a great investigation. And I have to say kudos to all of the law enforcement officers, because we were talking, you know, Romulus, Detroit, Taylor, the FBI, they spent so many hours, many of them on their own time when overtime wasn't being approved to go try to catch this guy. So someone out there knows something. Next, our resident true crime genius weighs in on this week's case, and we will have our closing arguments. Can't get enough of this case? The conversation continues online at crimecastersnetwork.com. It's time to get schooled by the teen sensation of true crime. Here's our resident boy genius with this week's sidebar. Hi, I'm Ryan Kester. I'm an 18-year-old pre-law junior at the University of Texas at Dallas. And ever since I was nine years old, I've been researching cases, attending trials, and pouring over hundreds of thousands of court transcripts, documents, and police evidence, all in the name of true crime. On today's episode of Sidebar, we're going to be discussing the difference between circumstantial and direct evidence. These are two terms that true crime watchers everywhere hear constantly, especially from defense attorneys or supporters of people who have been convicted. The case against them was circumstantial. 
But what does that mean? It's a common misunderstanding that circumstantial evidence is not compelling in the way that direct evidence is. But it's also commonly misunderstood what direct evidence is. There are two types of evidence that constitute direct evidence. Eyewitness testimony and a confession. Those are the only two pieces of direct evidence, okay? Circumstantial evidence is everything else. DNA, forensics, um, anything that requires a judge or a jury to make an inference about something. So I'm going to give you a hypothetical scenario. A woman is killed with an axe. Her roommate is found with the axe under her bed. The roommate's clothes are spattered with the woman's blood. And the roommate does not have an alibi. And the apartment doors were found locked. Who killed the woman? You likely said the roommate, as anybody would. But that roommate could take that case to trial and say, it's circumstantial. There's no eyewitness to the murder. There's no confession. But just because there's no confession or eyewitness doesn't make the case less compelling. In fact, a lack of a confession probably makes the case even more compelling because you're more likely to look at her and think, you're really trying to get away with this? The axe was under your bed. Her blood is all over your clothes. Does that make sense as to the difference between what a circumstantial case is or a direct evidence case? Because we frequently hear the term circumstantial being tossed around to weaken the prosecution's case, when in actuality, some of the strongest cases are circumstantial. I'll give you another hypothetical, a real life case, okay? The case of Scott Peterson. Scott Peterson was convicted in 2003 and sentenced to death for the murder of his wife, Lacey. That case was a circumstantial case. Scott Peterson has a lot of supporters who love to say that. But you look at the evidence. Lacey's hair being in pliers in the back of his boat. His lies. The concrete types matching. The convenience that Lacey was weighed down with anchors and there are anchors missing from his boat. The fact that the cadaver dogs alerted at the marina he was at. The fact that the baby and Lacey washed up at the marina. Not to mention all of his numerous affairs, lies, etc. The case becomes overwhelming when you look at the evidence, and yet it's still circumstantial. There's no eyewitness to him killing Lacey, and there's no eyewitness to him doing anything, really. But you look at it, and the case is compelling nonetheless. So I hope that that can kind of clarify what a circumstantial case is versus direct evidence case, and why the two can be equally strong. I have to go write an essay that I really don't want to write. It's like eight pages long, but I will see you guys next week on the next episode of Sci-Fi. And now it's time for our closing arguments. To the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, I want to say, please, please, Take another look at this case. It's been 16 years, and at this point in time, we know you're probably not going to get a confession, and the chance of getting new evidence is just not going to happen. And I know it's hard because one of the things that they say is, we get one shot, and if we roll the dice and we don't get a conviction, that person walks free. We saw that in the Jabali case. but. 
roll the dice because you're not getting new evidence. It's been 16 years. And Alicia, looking at the evidence in this case and talking to as many people as I have been able to do, there is a good circumstantial evidence case here. So that's my closing arguments. I think we broke a record. This is the second week in a row that I'm going to agree with you because we have now covered several cases where police are 100% convinced they have the right guy, but prosecutors refuse to take the case. Yes, as you said, Ronnie, this is circumstantial. And I get it, prosecutors, you want to put your best foot forward in front of a jury, pull out that smoking gun in a dramatic courtroom moment, put on a DNA expert that links the defendant to the crime with one in one trillion zillion percent certainty. But not all cases have that, unfortunately. Most do not when detectives feel they have enough evidence. And I'm not talking about just a hunch, especially when we're talking about the worst type of predator, the person who preys on innocent children and does unimaginable things to them. This person cannot be allowed to roam the streets free. And if you know who did it, go get him. God forbid he does this again. Then how are you going to explain it to the grieving family? When has enough time Continue the conversation with your hosts, Alicia and Ronnie, on any of your favorite social media platforms. Find us at Crimecasters and let's talk true crime.